Joseph Curie is a professor of English at St. Francis Xavier University in Antigonish, Nova Scotia, Canada, and a Shakespearean scholar. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Glad to be here. We're going to talk about Hamlet, and the way we're going to talk about Hamlet is to work methodically through the text. (laughs) So, in Act 1, Francisco and Bernardo are on their watch. There is discussion of this apparition that they've seen in the ghost, and the ghost doesn't talk to them. Their watch is at an end. So Bernardo comes in to replace uh, Francisco. Why did Shakespeare have all of these people, Horatio, Marcellus, Bernardo and Francisco, mm. they've all seen this ghost. Right. Why didn't Shakespeare just have Hamlet out on the ramparts? Mm. It's as if he wants to say that this is more than a figment of Hamlet's imagination. Mm-hmm. It's more than just his own intuition, which is what you would perhaps a modern reader would, would want to think. Mm-hmm. If this is just some sort of inkling that Hamlet has right, and right. his an intuition. Why would he put that ghost in, try and make the ghost real? Um, on the one hand, you need a ghost to get the play going. There is no other means with which Hamlet could discover that his father had, had been murdered. Other than having this inkling. Yeah, but he wasn't there. He might have had an idea that his uncle is not, you know, the nicest man. There are hints that, you know, the uncle is a highly sexualized being. And that, of course, is is equivalent to being, uh, shall we say, less virtuous. Gertrude, yeah, is, Gertrude is also a very sexual, sexually that's right. charged. That's right, and, and that really upsets Hamlet. So, so the connection between lust and virtue, or lack of virtue, is, is very strong in the Renaissance, um, strong until recently, in fact, and I would say it probably still is with him. He needs, Shakespeare, that is, needs a valid means with which to confirm if there was any suspicion, which we're not sure of, because the court seems to accept Claudius anyway. So there's really, I don't think there's really much suspicion that, that Claudius uh, murdered or, or that anybody had murdered the, the king. The story of the poisonous snakes seems to have been accepted. But how do you get Hamlet to know that this foul play had taken place? Other than just his own innate suspicion. If he had it. If he had it. And, and we can't confirm that he had it or perhaps even that he did not have it. So the ghost gives us this confirmation, gives Hamlet the confirmation, which, of course, we have to have as well. We open up with fear. The ghost doesn't give him the confirmation. The ghost gives him this suspicion. He has has to to confirm it himself. Yes, that's true. That's true. But the point is that how how does Hamlet, you know, even contemplate the idea that his father was murdered? If the ghost wasn't there to tell him, he probably would not have suspected it. Or if he had suspected it, he couldn't be believed, really, without any kind of external proof other than, than my suspicion, if he had it. The ghost gives gives him this... He puts this seed of suspicion right, in his that's mind. Right, that's right. But I guess my question yeah. is, why did Shakespeare put the ghost in mm-hmm. front of four other people? That's an interesting question in itself, because later on in Gertrude's closet, we're not sure. Gertrude doesn't seem to have seen the ghost. No, he's invisible She, she says, her. I see just empty air, right? 
And so why is it that she doesn't see the ghost, but Hamlet sees the ghost? Is it a figment of Hamlet's imagination then? Well, if we go back to Act 1, Scene 1, it's not. These other people saw the ghost. Does the ghost choose to show himself only to his son? It's very possible. In front in, of his in, wife. In, that's right. And actually, interesting enough, of course, the ghost then appears in his bathrobe, and in his housecoat, not in his armor, as he does in Act 1, and just about every other time that he does appear. So I think that the fact that these soldiers, very minor characters, you know, Marcellus, Bernardo, see the ghost, have seen the ghost before, and, and that's why the play opens up with, with this very, who's there? And obviously, there'd be much more fear conveyed in, in that question uh, than, than I can at this point. It confirms for us that they've seen the ghost before, I think. They do talk about, have you had a quiet garden on a monastery? And then, of course, as we discover, they've seen it before. Horatio, of course, is the scholar who will confirm or deny what they've seen, because they're, they're not scholars, they're just soldiers. And, and so Horatio is studying at the University of Wittenberg with Hamlet. Luther's. So, that's right, they're studying in Luther's hometown, and that, of course, brings a whole other set of troubles, you know, whether the play is Lutheran or not, and which uh, obviously we can't get into now. But, but the, you know, the point is, is that these exchanges between these, these various characters confirm for us that the ghost is real. That's the funny thing, though. Ghosts aren't real. No, uh, certainly for us, who are a lot more skeptical than the Elizabethans, no question. You're suggesting then, in general terms, uh, Elizabethans believed in ghosts. Absolutely. I mean, Elizabethans believed in ghosts more than we do. They certainly believed in witches and, and all kinds of other beings more than we do. Now, whether ghosts really exist or not is, is, is really irrelevant. For the purposes of the play, the ghost must exist. No, so it's not just a tactic or a method used by Shakespeare to give voice to Hamlet's intuition. It's... More than no, that. Oh, absolutely. I think I think Shakespeare's genius is in his ability to convey a m multiplicity of things uh, with one word, with one sign, with one uh, gesture. Sometimes, and and there are many gestures that are built into the the phrases that the various characters speak. But I think the point for the purposes of this play, the ghost exists. But also, the people, the audience, would have certainly believed that the ghost was real. Okay. So then we move from there to the scene two, the room of mm -hmm. state's castle, and, and uh, at this point, Hamlet has not seen the ghost, doesn't know anything about the ghost. There's the group. There's the king. There's Hamlet's mother, Gertrude, mm -hmm. who has married the king very shortly after the death mm -hmm. of Hamlet's father. There's Polonius, the, the advisors. There's Polonius' son, Laertes, Voltamond. Cornelius Hamlet, everyone's concerned because he's very melancholic. Although it's interesting, he doesn't like Claudius because in an aside, he says in a famous line, a little more than kin and less than kind. So in other words, sure, he's got my blood, but I'm not like you. Yeah, th there's a differentiation that he's making between him and, and his uncle, and also between the uncle and the brother. I mean, in a sense, we have to remember that his uncle becomes his father, his stepfather, right? And so, you know, there are different allegiances of duty, uh, for example. And just, you know, as, as his stepfather, of course, you know, his mother then, that's her husband, so he's supposed to be her head. He, but he of course, bridles of that. Uh, sure, that absolutely. In the later scene. And, yes. And also compares very unfavorably Claudius. Hyperion absolutely. Yeah. And 
more important, I think, too, is for Hamlet, he's a prudish character. Hamlet, uh, I mean, we have to remember, we all love the play. Uh, I don't know very many people who, who don't like the play. We all like to think that Hamlet is this wonderful human being, and I suppose to some extent he is, but he's also a very mean man, and he's also a very prudish man. Now, that's not a necessarily a bad thing, but for the time, Hamlet would have accepted the definition of incest in a very, very broad fashion. That is to say, his mother is having sex with the uncle, that is to say her brother-in-law, for our purposes, it would not be accepted as incest. It was for them. They were a lot more broad in, in their understanding of what constituted incest. And Hamlet sides with the, the very broad definition. Incest is, is frowned upon in the oh, extreme. We frown on it too, but we don't define it as broadly as they do. In their case, at that time, they included having sex with your brother-in-law, mm -hmm. even though you know her husband is dead. And he calls it that, and so does the ghost call it that. It seems to me that he would be much, much more upset with the, the fact that thrift, thrift, Horatio, the funeral baked meats did coldly furnish forth the marriage tables. The haste, yes. This is, um, would seem to me to be much more at the root of his anger. It's there uh, because the speed of the marriage confirms in his mind what he may have suspected beforehand, which is that his mother did not love his father. The breakdown between a marriage between his parents is something that he obviously takes to heart. It's almost as if he's as angry as if she would have been unfaithful Absolutely. while he was alive, while and, his and father was and, alive. And that's, that, that suspicion is actually seems to be confirmed, that in fact she may have been unfaithful while the father was alive. Now, my theory, I'm sure I'm not the only one to have this theory, is it seems that the father, Hamlet Sr., that is to say, was basically a warrior. He was out fighting wars all the time, and therefore he did not cherish his wife. He seemed not to have taken care to be loving to her, given her gifts and that kind of thing, for example, mm -hmm. as Claudius seems to have done. Right, you know, we have that line that Ghost says he seems to have won my wife with gifts. Um, paraphrasing, of course, but the point is that Hamlet seems to have noticed that before he went to university, and he seems to be confirming that suspicion by saying, you know, they married too quickly. So it's true that the quickness of the marriage confirms that suspicion that his, his mother seemed not to have loved his father. Oh, or vice versa. Uh, or, or vice and, versa. And vice versa. But I, I suspect that he is more of a misogynist, though. That, in other words, I don't think he put fault in his father. Because no. my sense is that he seems to have idealized his father. I mean, he's Hyperion, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the sun god, the, the great perfection, ideal. And so it seems to me that Hamlet Sr. could do no wrong. And yet... We suspect that he did a lot wrong. He was a warrior. He was out fighting wars all the time, which Claudius is putting to an end. Yes. And I think that the first speech that the king gives in scene two, though yet of Hamlet, our dear brother's death, the memory be green, and that it has benefited to bear our hearts in grief and our whole kingdom, etc., etc., etc. That speech is directed, I think, to the public, to the court, obviously, I'm, I'm talking about, in other words, the, the elite, uh, the nobility, which confirms, okay, you've approved my marriage to Gertrude. So in other words, I'm not doing anything wrong. You've given me the, your blessing in the marriage, but also in becoming your king, because one thing that he is able to achieve is, is peace. 
he's a good king. From that perspective, he's a very good king. That seems to suggest that Hamlet Sr. was not able to make peace. And so the nobility, you know, I mean, it's not in their interest to be at war all the time because it costs them money, but also, I mean, it costs them lives, right? Their children and so on and so forth. And so I think these are indirect means of saying that Hamlet Sr. may not have been an, an ideal king nor an ideal husband. Isn't it interesting, yes, that the fury of a child, the perception that one of his parents isn't doing their job, isn't loving the father, vice versa. This is something that gets to the heart of the angst that a lot of children feel in families where there's divorce. It's great uh, psychological insight. Uh, Shakespeare has wonderful psychological insight. There's that famous essay by Harold Bloom, and I I believe the title goes something like uh, Freud, a Shakespearean reading. Uh, And the thesis, uh, I mean, if I may be so bold as to summarize it, is that Shakespeare invented psychoanalysis, but but Freud codified it. Well, Bloom suggests that Freud gets all of his good stuff from yeah, Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I, it's sad to say that because, I mean, Freud was a brilliant thinker. But there's no question that Shakespeare had a gut instinct for these things, you know. He, he was clearly an, ob- an astute observer of human nature. Brilliant intuition. So, yes, of course, this breakdown of marriage, how the son feels, we often don't remember that Hamlet is the only child. Now, did they have other children and they did not survive? No, quite common. I mean, uh, there was high infant mortality rate. But he is the only child, at least as far as we know. I mean, And so, of course, he would have been the pride and joy of, of Hamlet Sr. There's no question. He would have been the natural, even though kings are elected, he would have been the, the first likely to be considered to replace Hamlet Sr. As Hamlet himself says at one point, that Claudius has basically uh, you know, shafted me in, in not allowing me to become king. So there is that too, of course. Uh, It's an important thing to recall. So toward the end of scene two, then, we're we're setting the stage for the the various characters that have seen the ghost. They want Hamlet to see it as well. If Hamlet comes into contact with the ghost, maybe the ghost will actually try and communicate, Mm -hmm. whereas previously the ghost hasn't said anything. Now, So we move to scene three, and we're now looking at Laertes, who is the son of Polonius, and Ophelia, his sister. He is warning Ophelia that Hamlet, you know, is the prince, and even though she suggests that Hamlet loves her, she thinks that he loves her, he has expressed that Mm -hmm. he loves Mm -hmm. her. As a protective brother, Laertes then says, Then weigh what loss your honor may sustain. If with too credent ear you list his songs, or you lose your heart, or your chaste treasure open to his unmastered importunity, fear it, Ophelia, fear it, my dear sister, and keep you in the rear of your affection, out of the shot and danger <laughs> of desire. Yes. It's, it's a wonderful speech, because, of course, it does remind Ophelia... And again, I think that's Shakespeare's genius, is that it reminds Ophelia that just a second here, brother, <laughs> you know, you talk the talk, but what about this double standard? And of course, she says, I mean, as she responses, you know, I shall the effect of this good lesson keep as watchman to my heart, but good my brother, do not, as some ungracious pastors do, show me the steep and thorny way to heaven, while like a puffed and reckless libertine himself, the primrose path of dalliance threads, yes. and wrecks not his own reed. I mean, 
what Laertes is saying is not uncommon. This is the kind of lesson that any young woman would have been given by any older brother or father. I think the important thing to note here is that Laertes and, and of course also Polonius, as we learn later, don't believe that Hamlet would be serious about marrying Ophelia. There's no way, because he's a prince and, you know, you're one step below. There's this highly stratified society that they seem to cling to much more than, let's say, ironically, Hamlet would cling to. And I think that that's the importance of this exchange between the two children, Polonius's children. It's interesting that the brother feels obliged to give advice to his sister Mm -hmm. in a caring, sort of a protective way. Then the father comes in, Polonius, and he comes with his famous speech about Mm -hmm. neither a borrower nor a lender be Mm -hmm. because Laertes is Mm -hmm. off to France. That's right. The father's wanting to... to, to The same sort of protective instinct. And then he he also weighs in, basically reinforcing what Laertes has Mm -hmm. said, when the blood burns, how prodigal the soul ends, the tongue vows. In other words, you know... Hamlet's just trying to get into your pants by saying, Absolute, oh, yeah. and uh, <laughs> I don't like that as a father of my, of my chaste daughter. And, and you know, the, the, the funny thing is, and I think this is the one, I mean, Branagh, I think, did a wonderful production of Hamlet, but the one thing that I think he did best is in portraying Polonius. Traditionally, Polonius is portrayed as a buffoon, who nonetheless has these great, wonderful phrases like, neither borrower nor lender be. These weren't brilliant phrases. These were, you know, common phrases that Shakespeare simply, you know, gave to Polonius to show that he's not necessarily that wise. Uh, you know, he's repeating what is often repeating. Typical portrayal is he's sort of a puffed up, bit of a sycophant. That's right, and he is a sycophant, advice. you know. But I think Brano did the right thing in portraying him as also a very dangerous man. One who is a spy, a master spy. And also as such deceptive. I mean, you look mm-hmm. at, uh, we're moving Absolutely. ahead a bit here, but yeah. Claudius and Polonius That's right. are eavesdropping. Absolutely. Uh, you know, this is a detective story, of course, right? There's always somebody hiding. And as such, dishonest. It, it is extremely dishonest, and, and the majority of the play takes place in Elsinore, right? So, in other words, there is a kind of claustrophobic feel to it. Because, why why uh, claustrophobic? Well, because everybody's hiding from somebody, always. But why Elsinore? Why would that make it? Well, I mean, uh, traditionally set in Denmark, but, but you really could set it anywhere. No, no, really. you're yeah. saying, you're, you're suggesting that Elsinore is specifically claustrophobic. No, 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 just just the castle. The, the, the kind of a cold, I'm thinking when I think of that, I yeah. think of a kind of a cold, windy, not necessarily claustrophobic. Well, what I mean by claustrophobic is in the sense that, you know, there's almost no escape from this place. Isolated. That's right. There's, like, you there's know, nothing for miles and miles. That's the sense, that's the feel that I, I like to think is, is natural to this play. There's somebody spying on someone else all the time. There's no escapism. It's like Big Brother watching you. Now, traditionally, scholars have read Polonius, some scholars have read Polonius as uh, Lord Burghley, for example, who was himself, of course, Elizabeth's spy master. You know, he was her, her chief, her prime minister, I guess you could say, in, in, you know, in today's language. In other words, I, I think the idea of Polonius here in this scene being looked at as a buffoon, I think, is wrong, because I, I think that it's true he knows his place. He also doesn't want to lose his place. And so he probably has been elevated to, uh, to a higher status with Claudius than, let's say, the status he would have had with, with Hamlet Sr. That's sort of the suspicion that I get anyway. And so I think that that's probably why he would kind of sense just a second, I don't want you being close to Hamlet Jr. 
And so would use the idea of, of the stratified uh, argument as, as a way of, of keeping his daughter at, uh, from going there. So in other words, it's, it's, he sees it as a choice between Claudius and Hamlet, so don't go into that. And, and self-serving, right? Yes, of course. Yes, yes, yes absolutely. And, and so, yes, he, we end scene three with, uh, look to it, I charge you, come your ways, I shall obey my lord, says Ophelia. In other mm-hmm. words, uh, my command as your father, stop seeing this guy. That's right. Yeah. Which is tra- you know, has tragic consequences, really. Okay, so we move then to, to the next uh, scene, the platform and the encounter with the ghost. And the ghost brings a message, So art thou to revenge when thou mm-hmm. shalt hear. This play is an revenge, his foul and most unnatural murder. So this is one of the key themes in this play, revenging murder. Hamlet, it's now out. Now he feels obliged to find evidence so that he can then justify acting. It's interesting, later on, he kills Polonius thinking that it might be Claudius, and Laertes is then filled with the same burning need for revenge that Claudius fosters. Yeah, and they are foils. In fact, Hamlet uses the very word foil, with the pun fully intended. And there's also, of course, the third son, too, that is to say, Fortinbras, you know, strong arms, who also is out to take revenge for, you know, the losses that his father had suffered suffered at the the hands of of Hamlet Sr., yes. And so there, there are these three sons. They're all young, you know, about thirty or. And then yeah. yes, and they're all interestingly enough, acting in order to not protect the image of their fathers, but they're driven to honor their fathers. And to honor their fathers and to obey their fathers, uh, I would even say too. Now, th- the difference between Hamlet and uh, Laertes, but also the difference between Hamlet and Fortinbras, is that. Hamlet is a scholar. He's studying theology. And, of course, in those days, uh, theology was the kingly science, if you will. The difference between Hamlet and Laertes, just to, just to stick with those two at Elsinore, is that whereas Laertes rashly acts, Hamlet doesn't rashly act. Now, I'm not saying that he's slow, because, I mean, it takes four months for him to accomplish his deed. I don't know that that's a long time to try to prove and murder a king. It's a pretty tough no, task. No, but, but clearly there is... Th- there uh, is delay. There's de- well, uh, yes, delay, but also this desire to... You know, it's funny. We just had this discussion about the ghost being real mm-hmm. and, and, and Elizabethans believing mm-hmm. in ghosts. But obviously Hamlet doesn't believe the ghost's word. He has That's to right. prove it to himself. He has to prove so is he unusual in that well, sense? Well, not prove that ghost's existence. He wants no, no, he has to prove the ghost. That it's no. a good ghost, as he, he says, you know, an honest ghost. Or if it's a devil in disguise, right? Because they, they do talk about that, because ghosts can pretend to be, devils can pretend to be good and, and drive you to madness. Which, of course, is, is an allusion to, it leads us to, confirms that one of those themes in the play. But what I wanted to say, though, is that the, the difference here between the, the, the sons, the, is that this son, I should say, Hamlet, is studying theology. He's aware of one of the most fundamental tenets in, in Christianity, which is to say, you obey your heavenly father. The Bible is very clear. Honor thy parents. And also, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. It's not your task to, to take revenge. It's my task, God, to take revenge. And he knows that to kill anybody, 
I mean, to commit murder is to break one of the fundamental, it's, it's one of the laws in the Decalogue, right? You know, thou shalt not murder. Despite and the eye for an eye. Despite the eye for an eye, you know, even various parts of the, of, of the Hebrew Bible or, or the Old Testament are, are clear that revenge is not to be your. You don't take revenge. I, I believe Psalm 94 uh, might be wrong. It's very clear about that. One of the fundamental conflicts within Hamlet is, which father do I obey? Do I obey the Father, capital F, God? Or do I obey my earthly father? Again, we're jumping ahead a bit, but it's difficult not to. And when Claudius is at prayer and Hamlet decides, no, I'm not going to kill him then, have this opportunity, but if I kill him in prayer, he may go to heaven and he should yeah, go to hell. That's right. And he also says, I suppose Freud would call it rationalization, where he says, you know, I'm not for hire. I'm not a hitman, <laughs> to use today's language. No, no, I, I can't do it that way. I, I have to kill him in hot blood. Face to face and, and, in, a fair, and, in a fair fight. Yeah. Well, and, and hot blood in anger, because then I don't have, I'm not committing murder as much as... Uh, I'm, I'm seeking justice. Yeah, today's criminal codes would, what I suppose call it manslaughter, as opposed to intended cold, we used cold-blooded murderer, right? Well, he talks about hot blood. That is to say, not cold blood. In no, other words, passion, not in passion. That's right, yeah. a crime of passion. And, and I think that that's a fundamental conflict. Again, if we jump ahead a little bit, Delaertes at one point says, yes, when he's talking to, to Claudius, I will kill. Even in church, I'll kill. That is not that, something Hamlet would do. But this is, again, the heat of the moment. Laertes saying, I would... Yeah. I, I'm going to kill him. I don't mm -hmm. care where it... And, and Hamlet, I, I guess one of Hamlet's problems is that, well, I don't know if it's a problem, but I suppose we would say is that he thinks too much. Yeah, I think you that's know. that's how you yeah. s many people see Hamlet. But let's just move then. We've, be, got, we've be, got... Sorry, before we move on, I just want to talk about something we, we, we talked about earlier. You know, the ghost talks about incestuous and adulterate beasts in this scene in uh, about uh, the uncle and mother. He confirms for Hamlet it's incest. You wonder, at least I wonder, if Hamlet is not accepting that aspect of the ghost's words at their, at his word. You know, that it's just pure incest. And yet he doesn't quite believe that if, is it a good ghost or a bad ghost, and yet, you know, it's incest. So there is a bit of conflict there, I think, too. I think, in, in, I wonder if, if Hamlet is just looking for certain affirmations of certain things only. So we've, we've got that scene where revenge... The father wants his son to to avenge him. Then we move to the next scene, Act Two. Actually, mm -hmm. so we're at Act Two, beginning of first scene. Here, it seems everyone is concerned about finding out. Well, why is Hamlet so upset? There's a suggestion that he's more upset than he should be, and so Polonius then gets to thinking. Well, maybe it's because. Well, I think it comes to Polonius's mind after conversation <coughs> with Ophelia that Hamlet is really upset and in love with Ophelia and Ophelia has rebuffed him and this is what he's it's an unrequited love. And so Polonius says, I am sorry. First of all, he suggests that Hamlet's just toying with her. Then he comes to think that, in fact, Hamlet really does love his daughter, and it's because she's not requiting it. And here he says, Polonius says, that hath made him mad. I am sorry that with better heed and judgment I had not quoted him. I feared he did but trifle, 
and meant to rack thee, but beshrew my jealousy. By heaven it is as proper to our age to cast beyond ourselves in our opinions as it is common for the younger sort to lack discretion. So I think he's basically saying that I was wrong, and it's because Hamlet's flipped over you, and this is where that tragedy, I think, comes in, because mm. he's meddling with their their relationship. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that he's a busybody. Now, having said that, of course, I mean, a father wants to be protective of his child. However, I mean, there's no doubt that he jumps to conclusions. Now, is it because he doesn't want to be proved wrong? It's one of those ironies, again, you know, oh, gee, I may have been wrong, but it must be that, that he's mad for your love. It's almost mm. since he's blowing up the, the importance of his daughter. Well, that, and it seems that what Shakespeare might be after is the idea that, uh, okay, you know, the king knows that there's something wrong and we need to find out what this something wrong is and I will be the one to give him the answer because, you know, I'm, I'm his trusted advisor and therefore I have to have an answer for the king. And it seems that this is the perfect opportunity to present the king with a, with an idea that seems to make sense that you know oh gee he's he's in love with my daughter and that's and because it's unrequited love even though I'm to blame because I told her to get away from him this is the answer almighty king yes and they look to him for answers and and yeah. they do look to him for answers in other words he gives himself a, a bit too much self importance mm-hmm. now this is again one of the reasons that traditionally many people would have interpreted him as a buffoon and I still believe that he's not a buffoon that in fact he's a much more dangerous man dangerous in what sense well in the sense that he will get what he wants he will ensure that what he wants is the accepted thing or the accepted idea the accepted policy in other words don't get in his way or on his wrong side so for example this is why he's asking Ronaldo that to to spy on, on the Artes. he says the opening of the scene go and find out what's going on but don't make a fool of my son but basically you're gonna spy on my son yeah, but again, it, it's it's a protective instinct that's at play. Well, I suppose it can be looked at, and it might very well be a protective instinct. I think it's probably a little more here. My sense is that he trusts nobody. That's my sense. Not even his son? Not even his son. That's my sense. But again, yeah, why is he sending this guy over there? Well, his son likes France, and in those days it was one of the fashionable things to do. Yes, but does yeah. he want to control his son? Control might, I suppose, be a bit of a strong term. However, I wouldn't put it beyond him. My theory is that he's achieved level of importance that you can't endanger. Any slight endangerment of this level of control would take me out of this this newfound power. So, in other words, he doesn't want his son to act in a way that might... Might endanger the powerful position he's achieved. To spy on, on, on one's son, I think, is a strong uh, action. It seems to me that he's afraid that his son might be doing something that might endanger Polonius' newfound position of power. As opposed to being a protective father. That's, that's my sense of it, yes. But even Ronaldo is surprised, right, that Polonius is sending him to spy on his son. He kind of plays down Ronaldo's concerns. You know, this is the reason I, I say that Polonius is not a buffoon. Mm, he's more uh, calculated, and yeah. uh, but also uh, self-interested, e- even at the expense of uh, yeah. his own children. Then he wants to show that his theory about Hamlet's mm-hmm. madness has at its base Hamlet's rejection by Ophelia. That's right. And so he he wants Claudius to to. I'm not sure if I'm running ahead here or not, but to to spy on on an encounter between the two. Later on in the scene, Hamlet comes in. There's the king and the queen, Polonius. He's, he's provided his theory. 
uh, as to why Hamlet is so uh, stricken. And then Hamlet comes in and delivers this great line. Polonius is suggesting that he'll take his leave. And Polonius says, My honorable lord, I will most humbly take my leave of you. Mm -hmm. And Hamlet says, The great, you cannot, sir, take from me anything that I will more willingly part with all, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. except my life, except my life, except my life. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, we see here Hamlet is playing already... Is, 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 he's playing with him, but he's also already affecting this antic disposition that he agreed when the ghost says to him, remember me, Hamlet says, of course, I will remember you. And, and then he, he we, we skipped over that wonderful uh, scene, you know, or that part of the scene in which, you know, he, he says to to Horatio and to Francisco and Bernardo, you know, all right, you're going to swear? And they swear, and he says to them, you know, I'm going to put on this antic disposition, don't you dare, no matter if I say something, don't you dare say, oh, well, you know, we know what he's up to. You know, he's, he's words, faking it, yeah. Don't give me away, right? Well, don't give me away, but... Go along, you know, basically, like, I'm pretending to be mad, and don't say, oh, we know what he's up to, you know, or wink away, you know. Do, do they know? I don't know that... I didn't yeah. know that they knew that he... was the message that he got from the ghost. I didn't know that he told well, them that. Well, he, he certainly... They may not know the full message, but Horatio, of course knows but he basically tells them that it's an honest ghost and I'm but going to put on an antic disposition I'm going to pretend madness now of course they ask him what the ghosts say and he didn't tell them no but Horatio does find out of course I mean he does tell Horatio you know eventually everything but I think the point is that even if they don't know all the details they saw a ghost they know they saw a ghost they saw it before Hamlet sees it and Hamlet says, well, it's, it's an honest ghost, it, it is my father, and of course they know that because they've seen, you know, in the likeness of his father. And so uh, if you were to see a ghost and I would tell you, look, it's my father's ghost and, you know, I'm going to do this, well, you know, you'd kind of be afraid that, 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 you know, do I have power with the devil or do I have power with God or whatever. The point is that they trust Hamlet, which of course also confirms for us that he's liked mm -hmm. by, by the public, as we later find out that's uh, why find that, out clearly that's right? why Claudius doesn't kill it's, him exactly. after he's killed Polonius exactly so in, in other words you know again with one message Shakespeare tells us so much you see mm -hmm. so they like Hamlet they trust Hamlet and they sense that there's something wrong when the ghost appears you know so basically there he said he hasn't said that 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 the ghost has told him that Claudius has killed him He's basically saying to them, I am going to put on an antic disposition to get an answer, so Something don't tell wrong, people yeah. that I'm faking it. That's but right. But they don't necessarily know that the ghost has told Hamlet that he was killed by Claudius. They don't, but I think, but Horatio, of course, you know, find, okay. finds out everything. But, but again, you see, the, uh, I think what's clearly important as well is that when we first re-encounter Hamlet, in court with others, the, the nobility, like Polonius and company, we see that he's ha he had already begun his mission, his antic disposition. When he says to him, do you know me, my lord? Polonius says to him, and Hamlet says, excellent, well, you are a fishmonger. Well, of course, uh, a fishmonger is, is, is a pimp, but not just a seller of fish. Uh, again, there's that whole old jokes about fish and, and women. So Polonius says, well, not I, my lord. <laughs> then he's, and Hamlet says, then I would you were so honest a man. And, and what are you saying you know, there that you're even less honest than a pimp? Well, uh, th he's playing with, with the language to, to the point that at first it seems that Polonius 
it's hard for us to say that Shakespeare want Polonius to, to know fully what fishmonger meant. Well, Polonius probably did, but would he have taken it in that sense from Hamlet? That's, I think, is, is the key, because, you know, in, in uh, the nobility, while well, all levels of society have certain rules of conduct, if you will, certain uh, means and ways of understanding each other, for someone like Hamlet to go assaulting, uh, insulting, uh, or assaulting someone with language, uh, that would work as well. You know, this is very serious, and, and so he's basically calling him a pimp. Now, again, well, wait a minute. If you believe he's a pimp, well, I thought you were in love with his daughter. So how could you love his daughter, which makes her a prostitute, right? So well, you don't you necessarily know. sleep with a pimp's daughter, though. You sleep yeah. with his, his, his stable of women. Well, and, but still, and you're, you're criticizing uh, the father yeah. of the woman that you love. That's right. Which and, is, and, it's not and a so, great way to get know, in, in good with the, with, the daughter, with the person you love. Certainly. And, and, and again, you know, this, of course, you know, makes us jump ahead to the, to the scene later where where Hamlet and Ophelia are at it, and he tells her to get thee to an honorary. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, that also meant whorehouse. Yes, correct. And, you know, he accused her of nicknaming God's creatures. Well, again, those are all nicknames for different parts of the body. In other words, what, what a prostitute would do. You know, you go to a prostitute for her to treat you a different way and, and perhaps nickname you in different parts of your body. Different. And, I, again, the whole point is that he is being very insulting. Not something you would expect of a prince, Unless you suspect he's mad, perhaps. So, so he knows the game. You know, he's he's, he's sort of acting in extremes, which is often yeah. what uh, what mad people might do. That's why right. they've lost uh, yeah. propriety, let's say. Exactly, and, and you know, out of sync with your nature. And in that case, his nature is to be a prince. Princes or kings were born, not made. One one could argue, right? And so he's not know, acting very nobly. He's uh, not at all nobly, and 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 that, of course, uh, and and the puns there. I mean, for people who might doubt this, you know, when he says, "For if the sun breed maggots in a dead dog, being a god kissing carrion, have you a daughter?" And he, you know, there's a break. Have you a daughter? He's changing language right away. I have my lord. Let her not walk in the sun. Well, of course, walking in the sun is what prostitutes dead, right, to, to show the goods to, to the customers. <laughs> yes. uh, conception is a blessing, but not yes. as your daughter may conceive, friend, look to it. So there's the pun with, uh, about conception, of course, baby. And that takes us back to what Polonius had said to Ophelia when he was given her advice. No, you can grow round in the womb, right? So, be, that, in other words, be, be careful, you might get pregnant here. From Hamlet. From Hamlet, exactly, and then, yeah, and then he'll, exactly. he, he'll just discard yeah. you. That's right. And, 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 and of course, Polonius, he's still harping on my daughter. He doesn't quite get it, it seems. He, yeah, in fact, Polonius yeah. continues, whenever Hamlet mentions this Ophelia, yeah. it's like a, he sees it, takes it as a, uh, a confirmation, confirmation of his, of his, of his idea. His, yeah, his yeah, idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So, and, he's, and, you know, so he's egotistical. He's egotistical and, and, and it's strange because that's the sense of buffoon, yeah. uh, which we traditionally, that's sort of the kind of interpretation we would give uh, Polonius. Those are the scenes in which we say, well, he's a buffoon. Well, I don't think it's that simple because Although he, he seems to be stuck on this idea, my sense, again, this is you know my sense, and I'm sure others might share this sense, but he wants to, to try to confirm his sound policy. Uh, he, he's able to figure out people. Mm-hmm. He's an yeah. astute observer of human beings. He can, f- I mean, after all, he would have had much to do with the policy that resulted in peace between, between Norway and, and Denmark. You know, the king clearly would have consulted him. We know that he's consulted him, as they, they confirm many times. Mm-hmm. 
and they've obviously yeah. achieved a peace. His reputation right? rests on getting it right. Absolutely. You don't deny you were wrong. <laughs> you don't ever admit you're wrong. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And yet again, he seems he seems not to see through Hamlet. The king sees through Hamlet right away. Mm. So the king is perhaps even more astute than Polonius. Yeah. Okay, so we move then. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern come onto the scene. They've been invited. They're a couple of uh, buddies of, of Hamlet mm-hmm. at, at Wittenberg. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Claudius has invited them in to try and perhaps get a bit of a handle on what's going on mm-hmm. with Hamlet. And that's the thing. Now everyone's focused on, well, what's going on in Hamlet's mm-hmm. head, which is mm-hmm. quite interesting. Everyone's concerned about that's it. Right. That's uh, right. And Claudius, I guess, is getting a bit nervous because he's, you know, he's concerned that Hamlet might be on to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, immediately Hamlet knows it's not out of pure interest in his well-being that these yeah. two are here. He knows they've been called for, so his guard is, yeah. is up. And yeah. during their initial encounter, there's ap- an absolutely beautiful, moving description mm-hmm. of his melancholy, his depression. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, foregone mm-hmm. all custom of exercises, and indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame of the earth seems to me a sterile promontory, this most excellent canopy, the air you look, this brave o'erhanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with gold fire, why it appears no other thing to me but a foul and pestilent mm-hmm. congregation of vapors. What a yes. beautiful, beautiful That's a lovely speech, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, uh, the, uh, you know, what continues there is, is the ironic speech, you know, what a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form, in movement, how expressed and admirable. And of course, ironic, I say, in that, not because it's not true, but because I think Hamlet is is speaking it to confirm their very... But they're opportunistic, they right? They you know, and, and it's and sad. It really is sad. It I mean, is very w- sad. I think what you, wanted to, what you want to believe, and there's perhaps an inkling with one of them that, that maybe they perhaps a little bit guilty about what yeah. they're doing. Yeah, it's really sad that these two friends, and, and they, may, they must be, have been paid to do this, I mm-hmm. guess, Sure. have come in with the sole intention of trying to figure out what's really going on in Hamlet, not caring necessarily about his well-being, but simply because they're getting paid to do this. They're putting their supposed friendship, they're using this supposed friendship of theirs Mm -hmm. for an ulterior motive, and it's sad. It is sad, and and Hamlet sees through that, you know, immediately, of course, right away when he, you know, they talk about fortune, and and then they go talking about sex, you know, well, when he says, and yet to to me, what is this quintessence of dust, then he says, man delights not me, no, nor woman neither, though by your smiling you seem to say so, and so in other words, come on, are you delighted by man as in gender, Uh, and then of course, why did you laugh then when I said man delights not me, Uh, so they, they laugh because, oh, well, come on, Surely you're not. You don't want to sleep with a man, you know. And of course, that's not what he meant. He meant man in general. And of course, they took it as man specific. In other words, a homosexuality reference. I think it shows the distance between these an intellect between. I would say two people, in fact, because Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are, are, are almost one person, really. Mm. You know, the king and queen. 
I haven't read the, the Tom Stoppard play. Yeah, it's a, yeah. Anyway, that, well, that's, yeah, that's I inside. Mean, there's obviously a whole existential twist to that play, but again, not to get off the, off the text, yeah. from text. But, you know, when the king and queen, they're, they're talking to them, you know, thanks, Rosencrantz, and gentle, gentle, Gimstone, and, and uh, you know, so they're, they're reversing them to, to keep them both the same, you know, mm-hmm. on, on equal footing. Now, of course, here what you have is Hamlet talking about something very serious about man in the generic term, of course, but, you know, what is it about us that makes us what we are? So Why do we care about someone's death? Why do we want to take revenge? Why? And yet, of course, they turn it to you know a sexualized yeah. you know thing. Sort of a there's, guy thing. There's a huge distance in intellect between them. Well, know. is it intellect or is it simply that they're not doing what a friend would do, which is well, really that, a, yeah, a true yeah. friend would would empathize, would reflect in yeah. the same way, and here they're just making light of it. Well, I, I think th- there's that element, of course, that's very strong there too. And yet, they're supposed to be scholars as well, right? Because mm-hmm. they're at the university at the same time. Now, is it because they are a member of a certain elite group or their parents made money as who knows apparently there were two scholars by those names at the University of Wittenberg at the time but the point is that they're clearly not thinking in the same way or even along the same lines as Hamlet and if they were true friends they would of course sit down with him as opposed to spy and of course I think he right away sees through them later on in that very sad scene too when he asks them to play the pipe, the recorder, and they can't, and they say, you know, just a second, you think I'm easier to play than a pipe? So right away, he, he clearly marks it. And, and I would say he even marks them for death from that moment on, which, again, we'll get to it later on in that scene. Okay, so the, uh, the players mm-hmm. arrive, a troop, and Hamlet has the idea that this troop of players will put on the play, the murder of Gonzago, and he'll rewrites a dozen, mm-hmm. 16 mm-hmm. lines mm-hmm. to make the play align with what he thinks actually happened to mm-hmm. his father. Yeah, and of course the very famous, mm-hmm. uh, the play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. So that takes us to the beginning of Act 3 then, with the king, queen, Polonius, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and Ophelia. Okay, so that's probably a good place for us to stop. Yeah, we can pick up on that. We'll pick uh, up uh, from, from there.